0: morning, church family. I am so grateful that we get to end 2020 the same way that we began 2020, which is being able to gather together virtually and in person uh, as brothers and sisters in the presence of a holy, loving God. Um, in case you're wondering why I'm wearing a tie, this is not what you think. This is a Star Wars Mandalorian tie, and it goes good with these Millennium Falcon cufflinks. So this is more nerdy than fancy, people. Uh, as I've noted before, I am a fan of the musical Hamilton. Now, Hamilton's filled with a number of amazing songs, um, but I was reflecting on the last song recently. It's a number called, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. Now, throughout the musical, Alexander Hamilton, um, he spent a lot of time talking and thinking about the legacy that he would leave. And yet after he dies, it's other people, particularly his wife, Eliza, that gets to shape and tell his story. So one of the points the last song is making is that how we think about the past, how we think about our stories, is a matter of interpretation. There are a lot of ways we can tell a story, and it's up to us as to how we tell our story. This weekend, we wrap up our series, Christmas Stories, a series that's been focused on telling the larger story of Christmas, right, God's plans to redeem the world, along with how individual stories, like Mary's story, or the shepherd's stories, or even our own stories, how all these individual stories ties into that larger Christmas story of redemption. And so as we come to the end of a year, especially a year as challenging as 2020, this idea about storytelling is relevant. How will we, how will you and I, how ought we Tell the story of 2020. And what might that teach us as we enter into the story of 2021? So I'd like to dig into that a little bit, and I want to do that by examining Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 and verses 14 and 15. And I think these verses teach us three things about how we can frame this past season and how we can also frame this coming season. So context for the book of Ecclesiastes. The book was written by King Solomon, to whom the Bible says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. Right outside of Jesus, King Solomon is considered the wisest man who ever lived. And in all of his wisdom and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes. Now Ecclesiastes is written like an essay. It's, it's Solomon's musings on where to find true meaning and satisfaction. And so he explores all the different things that people pursue to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction, things like philosophy or materialism or physical pleasure. And he concludes that all these things that we typically search for, they're vanities, they're empty. By the end of the book, Solomon comes to the conclusion that ultimately all that we can do is fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Right? Wisest man who ever lived, and that's his conclusion. That our deepest need and our truest purpose is to commit to this relationship between creator and created, right? That, that and only that, that and only that is gonna ultimately bring us meaning, purpose and satisfaction. Now before he comes to this conclusion, he muses on a number of different topics and that takes us to our passage today, Ecclesiastes chapter three, where Solomon discusses how we ought to think about the concept of time. That's a bit of a long passage, but I think it's familiar to many of you, so please follow along as I read. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh And then jumping to verses 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. It's a lot to digest here, but I think it teaches us three things to focus on in this next season. The first is this. It teaches us that we ought to expect change. We ought to expect change. In these eight verses, we see this list of different seasons of time. There's 28 seasons of time listed in 14 contrasting themes. Right, a time to be born and a time to die, time for war and a time for peace and so on. Very first verse actually tells us for everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There is a time and a pointed time where everything that's going to happen is going to happen in due course. These verses are telling us that our lives, they're this layered tapestry of different seasons and times that are all connected together. we don't get to simply park in one season and then just remain there. Now we might be in one season for a long spell But eventually, we will move on to another season, and on to another season after that, and then another one, so on. We ought to expect change. We see this in the lives of people throughout the Bible. I mean, look at Moses, for example, right? Moses begins his life uh, floating down a river in a basket of reeds. Then he grows up in luxury in Pharaoh's courts for a season. Then he spends a season in a foreign land for murdering an Egyptian then he comes back to Egypt and spends a season as God's prophet to lead his people out from under Egyptian oppression. And then he spends a season in the wilderness. right From from reeds to pharaoh's courts to, to a foreign land, back to Egypt and then back to the wilderness in sight of the promised land. So many seasons of change. Or look at the life of King David. Starts his life in shepherd fields. Then he spends it running from and to, uh, in, uh, in favor and disfavor in the eyes of King Saul. Then he spends four decades ruling as king of Israel. Spent a season being punished and facing the consequences for both murder and adultery. But he's also called man after God's own heart, right? From sheep fields to the throne, from consequences of sin to redemption, we see seasons of change. You know, you and I, our lives consist of these different seasons as well. And so we ought to expect change. Now, I acknowledge that encouraging us to expect change is far easier said than done. For many people, change is a very difficult thing. Something that many of you don't know about me is uh, I suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD as it's commonly called. And a lot of people say that they have OCD, but they don't really mean that, right? I mean, do you guys check your locks before you go to bed each night? You see, that's, that's normal, that's not OCD. Do you check all of your door locks and all of your window locks and all of the oven knobs to make sure that they're off and you do that three times? And then if you go upstairs and you can't remember if you did it three times so you go back downstairs and do it again three more times? See, that's the difference between me and you. For those of us that suffer from OCD, routines are everything right beyond just door locks. I have routines for how I brush my teeth and how I shower and how I tie my shoes. My life is run by all these routines. And so anything that disrupts my routines change causes me great tension. All that to say is I understand better than most the tensions that we feel when change occurs. But if we go through life better, but, but if we go through life thrown off every single time that change occurs, it's going to become pretty problematic. I mean, wasn't one of the reasons 2020 was so difficult for so many people was the fact that there was so much change, right? That it was an utter disruption to what we had considered normal. That it brought significant change to the norms around how we work and how we do ministry and how we educate and how we interact with one another. And we can do all of those things still. We can still work and do ministry and interact and be schooled. And yet it's different. And that causes us tension. Right? It makes us think the sky is falling. It makes us consider the entirety of 2020 as one big dumpster fire. Why? Because of change? So the only way to cope with this is to do two things. One, expect change. Expect change so that it's no longer a surprise. Assume that change is coming. Assume that like Moses's life and David's life, our lives are going to go from season to season and it's going to experience change. As Greek philosopher Heraclitus noted, change is the only constant in life. Change is coming. Expect it. And because we expect it, it means that when something does happen in our lives, when change comes, well, instead of panicking, we could be like, oh, oh, so the Lord, Lord, you're moving me to the next season. Okay. Lord, I wonder what's in store for me in this next season. And we can bring that kind of mindset, and that mindset helps bring calmness to our response to change. But more importantly, while expecting change, anchor yourself in an unchanging God. Anchor yourself in an unchanging God. Anchor yourself in the truth that while seasons of life change, God does not change. The Bible says, "For I, the Lord, do not change." that while our life circumstances may shift, Jesus is our constant. The Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our whole perspective on change can shift when we take our focus off of the fact that change is coming and instead focus on the fact that God himself does not change. God's character doesn't change. God's plans for his people and for the world and for us, they do not change. God's faithfulness to his own promises, they do not change. And that means when something happens, not only can we say, I wonder what the Lord has for me in this next season, but we can also remind ourselves of these unchanging truths, right? That I know that God is good, I know he's perfect, I know that he's loving. And so whatever change is coming my way, it's coming out of that goodness and that perfection and that love for me. So when change inevitably comes, right, by reminding ourselves of God's unchanging truths and character, we can deepen our relationship with God instead of experiencing tension within it. The Bible says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Expect change, but anchor yourself in an unchanging God. Second, we ought to mourn the loss, but fixate on the gains. We should mourn the losses and also fixate on the gains. In these eight verses, the Bible shows us again 14 pairs of contrasting themes. It presents something negative with something positive. For example, verse 4 tells us there's a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. So question, when you read this pairing, when you read this verse, what do you fixate on? Do you fixate on the negative, right, the weeping in the morning? Or do you fixate on the positive, the laughing and the dancing? Or how are we to think about these two pairs that are connected together? Now, how many times have you heard someone say that 2020 was the worst year ever? That feels like a common sentiment. I love this Babylon B article with the headline 2020 rated worst year ever, provided you never lived at any other time in history. (laughs) The kind of mindset that reckons 2020 as the worst year ever is a mindset that is only focused on the negatives and ignores all the positives. You know, one of the many reasons I avoid social media is that I found that there's an abundance of negative posts and negative people, right? There are, this is what the culture calls gloomy gusses or Debbie Downers, apologies to people named Gus and Debbie. But there are people for whom nothing is ever good in their life, right? Everything is a trial. Every luck, all of their luck is bad luck. There's always another disaster coming around the corner. You could probably think of one such person that you know right now. And as we think on 2020, it would be very easy for us to be a gloomy Gus and to frame the entire year as consisting wholly of those things that were in fact challenging, right? Like a global pandemic, jobs lost due to COVID shutdowns, racial injustice, a divisive election, and so on. But to frame 2020 or frame any year in such a negative way is a problematic and broken Perspective. Let me show you what I mean. Let's say that we read the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes 3 with this negative focus perspective, because this is how it would sound. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to die. A time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill. A time to break down. A time to weep. A time to mourn. A time to cast away stones. A time to refrain from embracing. A time to lose. A time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to keep silence, a time to hate, a time for war. Pretty depressing, right? It's more than depressing. This kind of mindset is also an insult to God in that it reveals an underlying belief and a mindset that all that God has in store for us are miserable circumstances. When we wallow in negativity, when we fixate on what we have lost, it creates a breeding ground for bitterness. And that bitterness can lead to unhealthy beliefs about the character of God. When we spend too much time on negative things, focusing only on the negative, well, that's a hop, skip, and a jump away from wondering why God doesn't like us, why God is against us. Why God is so unfair. All things that, by the way, that are patently untrue. So how much better is it if instead we fixate on the positives? Let me read again Ecclesiastes with this positive framing. For everything there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to plant, a time to heal, and a time to build up, a time to laugh, And a time to dance, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to seek and a time to keep, a time to sow, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time for peace. Is that better? Less depressing for sure. But let me caution you on this. Even in this framing, when it's positive only, there's also a danger. A caution here, my caution here is that completely ignoring all negative things and focusing only on the positive swings us from one extreme to the other extreme. There is a danger in a perspective that refuses to acknowledge anything negative. Because the truth is this, far too often the shallow advice given by churches or by other Christians is to paper over the bad. To focus solely on the good, pretend the bad never happened. That's called being a Pollyanna. Apologies to people named Pollyanna. But it's having an overly positive outlook amidst real suffering. This kind of approach where we ignore all negatives is problematic because it makes people feel guilty for being human. Because there are plenty of bad things in this world, cancer, domestic abuse, racism, famine, death, and so on. Things that are a reflection of a broken creation and that are unquestionably unquestionably terrible to experience. And when we experience bad things, it is entirely natural and entirely human and entirely appropriate to mourn those losses. We mourn not just because they're things to be mourned, but we also mourn because as image bearers of a holy God, we have this innate sense that what we're experiencing is not meant to be. They're broken because creation is broken. And so it's okay. It's okay to spend some time grieving that brokenness. I love the line from O Holy Night that goes, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. It acknowledges the weariness but it expresses rejoicing because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That even in our losses, we have a comforter and a great counselor. And that even in our pain and hurt, that's very real, we have a great healer. And so this is where we want to be, beloved. We wanna be in balance where we take the time to properly mourn the loss, mourn those things that need to be mourned, give it space and time to grieve. And yet in the midst of that grieving and mourning, to also express praise for the blessings that we still enjoy because of a holy, loving God. Right? We can pray something like, God, I am hurting right now. I'm a, in a season of weeping and mourning. But I know that on the other side of this, you have laughing and dancing in store for me. And I know that you're with me every step of the way in this season. If I have you, I need nothing else. Right? With this kind of perspective, it's the balance between both the mourning and the laughing. The Bible says, it is the Lord who goes before you. And he will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Lastly, we can trust in God's sovereignty. We can trust God's sovereignty. I want us to look again at verses 14 and 15. The Bible says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. And that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. These verses emphasize the fact that God is sovereign. That he alone is in control of all things, including time. And so the only faithful response is to trust his sovereignty, to trust his plans, and most importantly, to trust him. We do that for two reasons. First, because once God has ordained something, there is literally nothing that you and I can do. Once he's willed it, it's done. Look at verse 14 again. Whatever God does endures forever. It's going to be there forever, last forever. We can't add to it. We can't take anything away from it. It's happened. And then in verse 15, it says this. The Bible says, that which is, meaning the present, already has been. Now, that phrase already has been is a Hebrew word, kevar. And it's, it means it's already done. It's, it would be similar to the English idiom, as good is done. That's what it means. The present, as good as done. It's already happened because God ordained it. And look at verse 15. That which is to be, the future, the future is also kevar. It's all as good as done because God has ordained that as well. So trying to resist what is already done in God's mind is one, pointless, two, going to lead to frustration, and three, at the end of the day, is disobedience. But the second reason we ought to trust his sovereignty is this, because ultimately his plan, his sovereign plan is the only path to redemption. The end of verse 15 is a specific verse phrase. It says, God seeks what has been driven away. The New King James Version translates it as, God requires an account of what is past. And the phrasing here implies that justice is going to be rendered for what is past. That what was lost will be brought back and redeemed. The Bible is telling us that not only does God control the present, it's done. And God controls the future, it's done. But the past that is done, it's going to be redeemed. Two people from the Christmas story demonstrate how we can trust God's sovereignty and see the redemption even during challenging times. Now, the first is Joseph. Joseph, here's a man whose simple life goal was to raise a family. and Instead, he finds out that his fiance is pregnant. And he's told the difficult-to-believe story that it's not even another man. It's a divine pregnancy. And so his seemingly only solution was to quietly end the engagement and save both their reputations. But an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, confirmed Mary's story, and told Joseph to put aside his own plan and instead trust God's plan. And Joseph trusted. Mary's the other side of that story. She too had a simple life goal of raising a family and instead she's told that she's going to bear the Messiah. She's told that she has to go tell her fiancé a difficult-to-believe story. Whatever quiet life she may have imagined was not going to happen. And yet she, too, trusted. In fact, her response was, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to his word. Faithful. In the actions of both Mary and Joseph, we see that the faithful response is to look past whatever change is coming, look past whatever challenges or difficulties may arise, and instead to respond in trust with the right level of humility. They lost whatever simple life that they may have imagined, but they became part of God's redemptive story for the world. Their losses became their gains Because God's plans eventually redeem that which was lost, we can fully trust him, knowing that his plans and his will are perfect and they're just and they are redemptive. The solution to dealing with all the tensions and stresses of whatever challenges and change our inner life is to remind ourselves that our lives are in the hands of a sovereign God. We can trust him. We can say, God, I trust you. But I trust you. Take my life where it needs to go. Give me the faith to be able to enjoy this journey because I know the end of this journey leads to redemption. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I don't know what situation you're in as we wrap up 2020. Maybe you find yourself in a tough season of work or a tough season of ministry. Maybe it's a rough patch in your marriage. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's some or all of these things. And maybe you're exhausted from having to battle through a season like this. Wherever you find yourself at the end of 2020, like Joseph and Mary and all the great heroes of the faith, trust God's sovereignty. Even in the darkest valleys, in the darkest shadows, especially in the darkest valleys and shadows, we can trust him, knowing that he's leading us to redemption. Priscilla Shirer wrote this, God's sovereignty has not been shipwrecked by your storm. Whatever storms of life that you are going through right now, know that they are part of God's plans, not detours from them. God loves us. God has our best interests at heart. So we can trust him. The Bible says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So how ought we tell the story of 2020? Same way that we'll tell the story of 2021. Same way that we got to tell the story of any year. That this was a year of expected change. A year we're filled with some challenges, but also a year filled with many blessings. And that God is good and perfect and has a good and perfect plan. And that this is the day, this is the season, this is the year that the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. So where do we go from here? Three next steps. First, I will lift up 2021 to God in prayer. I will lift up 2021 to God in prayer. No matter what 2020 was like for you, good, bad, both, a new year is days away. And 2021 is going to bring its own set of challenges and difficulties and blessings and change. And only God knows what that's going to look like. So the best way that we can prepare for this is by lifting up the year and lifting ourselves up to the Lord. Right? Pray and seek to know his will for how he would want us to impact his kingdom this coming year. We can pray something like, God, 2021 is yours and I am yours. Lord, Open up doors for me in 2021 and give me the faith to be able to walk through those doors. May our response be like Mary's response. Lord, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done according to me as according to your word. So lift up the coming year to the Lord in prayer. Second, I will mourn the losses of 2020, but also fixate on the gains. Mourn the losses, but also fixate on the gains. Again, we must be in balance between these extremes of, all negative and all positive, and be able to do both. The end of a year is a natural time to reflect on what the Lord was doing in us and through us this past year. So take the time to properly grieve what was lost, but also remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to us. We can say something like, God, there were many losses to mourn in 2020, but I thank you that you were there with me every step of the way in that morning. And that you have laughter in store for me on the other side of this. Blessed be your name in the land of plenty, but also blessed be your name in the desert places. But in all things, blessed be your name. Lastly, if you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet a Christian, then this next step is for you. I will give my life to Jesus Christ. And by doing that, enter into the Christmas story. The single best thing that can happen to your glory. Nothing will impact your 2021 and your eternity like giving your life to Jesus Christ. Lucy Barfield was born in Carlisle, England in 1935. And her father, Owen Barfield, was best of friends with a professor at Oxford University. When Lucy was born, this professor was named her godfather. Now, Lucy and her godfather developed a special relationship over the years. And out of his love for her, this godfather wrote a book for her and even included her as one of the main characters. In the dedication of the book that he wrote for her, this professor wrote this. My dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you. But when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you're already too old for fairy tales. And by the time this is printed and bound, you will be older still but someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can then take it down from some upper shelf, dust it off, and tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word that you are saying, but I shall still be your affectionate uncle, godfather, C.S. Lewis. That book was The line in the Witch in the Wardrobe in the character of Lucy Pevensey named after Lucy Barfield. Because Lewis loved Lucy so much, he wrote her into his story. My friend, this is the truth of the Christmas story. That there's a God who loves us so much that he wants us to be part of his story. Loved us so much, he wrote himself into the story in order to reconcile us by, by, through his death and resurrection. And if we give our life to Jesus, if we give our life to him, we become part of the eternal story. And one day, one day we will live happily ever after. Give God your life today. Enter into the Christmas story. See where he leads you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign above all things. We thank you that out of your sovereignty and out of your love, you drew us to yourself through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we're grateful. we are so grateful that you have made us part of your story. Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that they would feel that tugging in their heart. I pray that they can sense your calling them and you drawing them to you as well. And I pray that you would give them the faith even now to respond to that. Let them also be part of your story, Lord, I pray. Father, we just thank you as 2020 draws to a close. We thank you for what you've done in and through us this year and what you have in store for us, what you will do in and through us in 2021. Lord, whatever may pass, whatever lies before us, may we still be singing at the end of it. All glory be to you, O Christ our King. All glory to you, in Jesus' name, amen.